there was a, a lawyer, God bless you, There was a lawyer that uh, went to meet with his, his uh, client. His client was in jail. And so he went to tell his client uh, some good news and some bad news. So first thing he said was, let me, let me tell you some, let me tell you the good news first. Uh, no, 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 no. I'll tell you what. Let me tell you the bad news first. It's really bad news. So sit down. Your blood and your DNA was all over the crime scene. So that's really bad news. But the good news is your cholesterol was a beautiful 130. <laughs> so, unfortunately, you're going to live a long life in prison was the, the moral of that story. So, um, I titled the message today, we're in John chapter 16, and the title of the message is Choose the Correct Courtroom. Stand with me. We're going to read God's Word together, and I want to read... Uh, John 16, 4 through 15. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Verse 4, yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you for a while longer, but now I'm going away to the one who sent me, and not one of you is asking where I'm going. Instead, you grieve because of what I told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. There's so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said, the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the book of John. The book of John has changed so many lives, and we pray for life change today. We pray, Lord, that we will step into the fullness of what you have given us, another advocate, the Holy Spirit, to live in us, to work through us, to remind us of everything you said, Jesus. And we want to take your words, and we want to apply them to our lives, and we want to live them out 
in a way that brings you glory. Work through every one of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Yeah, so uh, we're in John chapter 16, and so it's a, it's a courtroom setting for us all. And the uh, courtroom setting is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I hope you've never had to experience it for yourself because of something you're going through, but uh, we love it on TV. So over the years, there have been 22 television shows about lawyers. They're just, they're the best. And it all began with the master defense attorney, Perry Mason. Anybody? No, never mind. Don't raise your hand. Anybody besides me? Remember, I remember as a kid watching Perry Mason. Did you know it was the first ever hour-long television show? It started airing in 1957. And after Perry Mason came Matlock. And Matlock ran also for nine seasons. And then uh, came along L.A. Law. It was the first show about multiple lawyers. We all know the longest-running franchise is, of course, Law & Order. That ran for 20 years. Law & Order SVU is now in its 23rd season. And apparently, Law & Order is coming back. I just heard that. Now, here's some worthless trivia. How many of you knew that Gomez of the Adams family was a lawyer? Totally useless information. But... Um, William Shatner played a lawyer in Boston Legal. Remember that? Never lost even one of his 6,043 cases. Wow. I guess it was good to be Captain Kirk and to have Spock by your side. But I want to quote today a real lawyer, and his name was... Um, Justice Scalia, and listen to this incredible advice he gives us from the Christian, uh, uh, about how to live the Christian life. Justice Scalia said, God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools. And he has not been disappointed. If I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ. And have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Now that was uh, written by, uh, the book is called A Court of One. It's about the life of Justice Scalia, written by a man back in 2014 named B.A. Murphy. Today we're going to talk about another lawyer, uh, another paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Remember, we recently looked at this word, we came across it earlier, the word paraclete, and we saw that it means someone who speaks on your behalf in a courtroom setting, in a trial, in a legal proceeding. We found out from the book of John, Jesus is our paraclete, before the Father. He's our advocate. He's there at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf 
so that our sins can be forgiven, so that our righteousness is not our own, but it's his righteousness that's been given to us. And for every one of us to, this morning, right here, right now, be determined to be declared not guilty in the judgment. The Holy Spirit, at the same time, is the Father's paraclete with us. And he comes to tell us about the Father's will. He comes to give us the truth about his son Jesus. And he comes to communicate the agape love of our heavenly Father that he has for every one of us. Now Jesus, in our text today, is speaking with the disciples in the upper room, or possibly because of that last verse in uh, chapter 14 where he says, come, let's be going. So now we're already in chapter 16, and Jesus being the master teacher, I told you this last week, that probably they had left the upper room, and when he said, I am the vine, they're standing in front of his favorite vineyard, and then when he tells them you're going to be hated by everybody, he's probably standing on Golgotha, and he knows what's about to happen, they don't. Probably right now, he's, he's kind of either in front of the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, or of uh, Pilate. And because here's what he's explaining to the disciples, and he's, he's circling around like these three different subjects, these three different ideas. Number one, they need to know this. He's about to go to the Father. Now that's, that's tough news for them. They didn't want him to leave. Hard to grasp, but he had to go. Secondly, there was much more for him to say, but they weren't ready to hear it. That's a great reason why he had to leave, because then he would come back to each one of them through the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and he would be able to tell them, remind them, share with them what they need to know that they're not ready to know now. And then thirdly, he was going to send another advocate to them of the same kind as he was, when he was with the disciples, so that they wouldn't be orphans. I remember back in the year 2000, my dad died. My mom had passed in the year 1992. And friends, I don't care how old you are when it hits you. That moment's hard to swallow when you are an orphan, when you don't have any parents anymore. My mom, I remember, I think I was about 10 years old when my mother, um, I don't know, she was just so important to me in my life at that time. And I had just heard for the first time in my life about some orphans who as children had lost their parents. And I couldn't stand it. I could not even think about not having my mom with me. But so I'm 35 years old when my mom dies. I'm, I think I was 44 when my dad died. But still, that moment was difficult. However, my dependence on the Holy Spirit began to grow exponentially after the Lord took my parents home. So I just want to say this today right here. Whether your parents are still living or not, Today, transfer your dependency over to your heavenly Father, to Jesus, the Son of God, to the Holy Spirit. He loves you. He will take care of you. He'll be your dad. He'll be your mom. Amen. 
He'll be your parent. He promised these disciples that he would not leave them as orphans. First point of my message today, I want to tell you the reason why Jesus went away. Now, each time Jesus comes back to a subject that he's already spoken about, he adds greater depth to his previous teaching. And this is what he's doing here in our text today because he's going to talk to them again about the Holy Spirit, the, what he calls another advocate. And Jesus is telling us all about the work of the Spirit, both in the world and in the believer. And Jesus wants to speak more to them of the coming another advocate and his work in the world and how he's going to work in believers' lives. So that's why he says today in verse 7 that in fact it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I don't leave, the advocate won't come. Now listen very carefully. God, the Holy Spirit, has the same qualities as the Logos, the pre-incarnate Christ. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit has always existed and was always present with the Father and always present with the Son. There's never been a time when the Holy Spirit was not because he is co-eternal with the Father and with the Son. That's powerful theology. Also, the Holy Spirit is present everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. He's omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. He makes known his presence in various ways and at various times. Jesus, as fully God and fully man, could only be in one place at one time while he was living on earth. So as the advocate with the Father, he was limited in what he could actually accomplish. Now, Jesus is no longer limited because he's everywhere present through the Holy Spirit, and he's present right now at the right hand of the Father interceding for all of us at once. Friends, I'm 65 years old, and I've been serving Jesus pretty relentlessly since I was seven years old. At the age of nine, I started reading the Bible every day, and I've only missed a day here and there throughout these last 58 years. But only this week, as I was studying with my research consultant, Larry Wilson, did I realize that Jesus was able to regain his omnipresence through the Holy Spirit. I thought he was going to give it up for the rest of eternity, but he's omnipresent through the Holy Spirit. That's how he can be with us. That's how you can rightfully say, Jesus lives in my heart. Jesus will never leave me. Jesus will never forsake me. Jesus loves me. Jesus cares about everything that I care about. Listen, I love serving a God I can't fully comprehend. I love it. I used to hate it because I wanted to know everything. And, you know, I guess probably I, I think there is a, a fallacy in some people 
that they want to be so smart that people would kind of look to them like they're God. They have all the answers. Friends, there's only one God. He's been made known to us in three persons, but he's the only one who can comprehend himself. None of us can do it. Samson, his parents, remember? They had a theophanies. They had Jesus show up in the form of like an angel, the angel, <laughs> Jesus, and they want to know his name. And he tells them, my name is beyond comprehension. You'll read that in Judges chapter 14. So I think most of us are of the persuasion that when we get to heaven, we will be omniscient. We'll know everything. But according to Revelation 19, 12, there's at least one thing none of us will ever fully comprehend his eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. That's Revelation 19, 12. You and I will never fully comprehend God and his name. We'll be learning about him throughout the rest of eternity. Now, I don't understand today how Jesus is now through the Holy Spirit omnipresent, but I'm so glad that he is, aren't you? I need him with me. You need him with you. So many things are possible now that he went away. I love that we sing this morning that um, um, nada es imposible. Nada es imposible. Nothing is impossible with our God. If you, the day you were born, went and stood in line, if Jesus were here right now, if he had never left, if he, some 2,000-year-old guy, which he could be, he could be sitting in Jerusalem, ruling the world, but if you were born, the day you were born, your mom put you in line, and everybody in the world got 15 minutes with Jesus, you'd be 85 years old before your time came to be with him for your 15 minutes. That's why he went away. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us as believers would not have been possible if Jesus didn't go away. The truth is that the voice of the Holy Spirit within you, the actual indwelling presence of Jesus and the intimacy that we can have with him and the strength of the Holy Spirit that he gives us during worship and the, the cry of Abba Father from our hearts when we pray, not any of that would have been possible until Jesus was glorified with the Father. He had to go away. I don't understand all of that, but I love having the Holy Spirit living inside of me, and I want the Holy Spirit to empower me even more every moment of every day in my walk with Christ. How about you? Now, friends, I could stay here and talk about this all day, but I want to move on. However, I just don't want you to miss. I think most believers kind of read over verse 7 they don't really consider the depths 
of what Jesus was saying when he told the disciples, I have to go away. But think about this. The Holy Spirit could not manifest himself in us unless these things happen. Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus rising to new life, Jesus being glorified by the Father, and Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Fully aware is Jesus that he's about to face two different trials, one before Caiaphas, one before Pilate. He knows they're going to condemn him in both. Point number two of my message today, I want to talk to you about the reason why every one of us are put on trial. But first, let me talk about the trial of Jesus. He goes before Caiaphas and part of the Sanhedrin, and the Jewish people put their Messiah on trial, and they condemn him. That's what John meant when he said in chapter 1, verse 11, he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. This is a religious trial before the nation of Israel, where actually what happened was Israel rejected and condemned their Messiah. Now, they didn't have the authority to exercise the death penalty without the Romans giving them permission. So what happened? After Jesus is condemned by Israel, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin send him to Pilate. Now, this trial is the trial before the world, the world that has hated him. This is where the world condemns its Savior and sends him to the cross. And both of these trials were divinely necessary. One, giving evidence of the rejection of Israel, God's chosen people, and the other giving evidence of the hatred and the rejection of the world. These two trials had dual significance. While Israel was placing the Messiah on trial, God was putting Israel on trial for rejecting their Messiah. The verdict of Israel against their Messiah was God's verdict against Israel. When Pilate put Jesus on trial for the world, God was in the exact same manner putting the world on trial for killing his only begotten son. So when Israel condemned her Messiah, God officially declared Israel unfit for usefulness in his kingdom all the way until Romans eleven twenty six will be fulfilled. It will happen. It won't be long. All of Israel is going to be saved. And we Gentiles, we have benefited greatly from Israel's rebellion and becoming enemies of the good news. But God is more than eager today to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong, and very soon he will do that. And I just believe, maybe you're here or maybe you're listening and you're Jewish, Jesus wants you in his kingdom. And he wants you right now. And all of us, Lord, help every one of us to lead a Jewish person to Christ. They're all coming one day. 
But when the world condemned the Savior, God officially declared the world unfit for usefulness in his kingdom at the trial and execution of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, I think most of you know, he was a great preacher over in England in the 1800s. On April 28, 1867, he preached a sermon where he said these words. You stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that wonderful? When we stand before God, he'll only see us through his son, Jesus. Hallelujah. I don't want him to see me. I don't want him to open the books on my life and tell everything I've ever said, done, thought, felt. Mm. No, 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 no. I want him to see Jesus. I want him to see everything in the book on my life covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, every one of us is going to stand trial one day, just like Jesus stood trial on this night. For every Jewish person, they either right now stand with the Caiaphas, the high priest, with the Sanhedrin, and they condemn Jesus Christ, or... They stand with Jesus, and they condemn Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. There's only one thing that makes a difference. It's faith. If they put their faith in Jesus, they'll be standing in the correct courtroom. Now, those who came to faith in their Messiah stood with Christ and were declared innocent before God. Every person in the world either stood with Pilate and condemned Jesus Christ or they stood with Christ and they condemned the world and Pilate. The difference is faith. Those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ by faith, we stand with Jesus. We stand with Jesus before the Father and Jesus declares our innocence. So I'm going to ask you right Now, whether you're here right now at Trinity or whether you're watching online, where do you stand, my friend? Amen. If you stand with Caiaphas, you're in big trouble. You're going to be in the wrong courtroom. If you stand with Pilate, same thing. But if you stand with Jesus Christ today, if you are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you stand with him and you're headed to the correct courtroom one day. Now there's two words, one's in verse uh, 7, the other one's in verse 8. And uh, they particularly show this to be a courtroom scene. In verse Seven, we read that. Um, he had to go away so that he could send the advocate in verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict. That's the second word. So the first word is advocate, and the second word is convict. He will convict the world of its sin, of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. So This is really a courtroom setting. I mean, we have to grasp a hold of that. Now, the Greek word translated into English as to convict 
it's so difficult. It, the way you should see how it's spelled. It doesn't sound anything like it's spelled. I can't even pronounce it. But this Greek word has a long, diverse history in Greek culture. And the New Testament meaning of it is derived from how it's used in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it means to correct someone and show them the fault of their sin. It's found either with the person being convicted or the sin they are convicted of committing. So the main idea is an objective, fact-based, eternal conviction, I'm sorry, external conviction, as you would have in a court resulting in a guilty verdict. Now this convention, we all know what conviction is. It's way deeper than just, oh, you feel guilty. That's not the main thrust of this word. This word is not used to correct a trivial matter or an unimportant thought. Whenever this word is used, it's a very weighty word. It's, it's a, talking about the, the weight of sin. It's talking about a disastrously false idea. Three things that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of being guilty of our sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, friends, you need to know this and take great relief in realizing that it is not your job to convict anybody of their sin. Woo! Thank God. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And only the Holy Spirit, you and I can't do it anyway. The Holy Spirit may convict the unbeliever through something you say or, or do or the way they watch you living, but it's still the Holy Spirit that's going to do this deep work of conviction. And I think as Christians, we mess this up in our witnessing because we try to make sure people walk away convicted of sin. <laughs> we try to do that on our own. We try to do that by ourselves. Generally, that will just lead you into an argument. The Holy Spirit convicts Israel of the sin of unbelief in their Messiah and the world of unbelief in Jesus, their Savior. Verse 9 tells us in this passage that the world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. That's the sin of the world. The Holy Spirit convicts of other sins as well, but the primary conviction is because of our unbelief. Because of our unbelief. When the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, the response is one of either hardening towards Christ or repenting of our sins. The Holy Spirit is constantly convicting the world about sin. Now, with moral relativism so deeply ingrained in our culture, the Holy Spirit also has to convict people that sin is sin, that wrong is wrong. So he has to go back and start there. People are living in sin, and they think they're living a righteous, holy life before God. 
So the Holy Spirit starts there to say, look, <laughs> what you're doing is sin. How you're living is wrong. Okay, now that we got that cleared up, now I'm going to convict you. That's what the Holy Spirit says. And he has to break through people's excuses like, well, you know, I deserve this anyway. Or, hey, I wasn't hurting anybody by what I was doing. Or, hey, everybody else is doing it. All of us that are here today know the power of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. Now, the next thing Jesus mentions for the Holy Spirit to convict us of concerns righteousness. Most people don't read this in the light of a courtroom setting or the technical meaning of the verb to convict. They just think it simply means something like what righteousness is. But it's much more specific than that. In the two trials Jesus went through, the perfect righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, wasn't just questioned, ladies and gentlemen. It was outright denied. Both trials claimed that Jesus was unrighteous and worthy of death. In verse 10 today, Jesus explains this convicting work when he tells us that he will convict the world of its sin, of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. And in verse 10 he says, righteousness is available because I go to the Father and then you will see me no more. The work of convicting Israel and the world of righteousness is twofold in showing that Jesus was perfectly righteous and that he went to the Father and now is seated at his right hand. His righteousness has gained him the seat of honor and the title Lord so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Now that's also the Spirit's work of convicting Israel in the world of righteousness. It's the Holy Spirit's work that Israel and the world's definition of righteousness is completely wrong. And we know that by looking at how Jesus was handled in those two trials that he had to go to this very night that he's speaking these words in John 16. The Holy Spirit is convicting Israel and the world that relying on your own self-righteousness is actually unrighteousness. And it's actually sinful. Paul, remember, what did he say? Considered himself blameless under the law. Until what happened? Until the Holy Spirit convicted him of his own righteousness. And then after conviction, what does he do? He counts all of his previous righteousness as what? He called it, I love this word, skubala, filthy rags, filthy rags, used menstrual rags is really what that's talking about, skubala, everything I've ever done that I thought was righteous is absolutely filthy in the sight of God. The third work of the Holy Spirit in convicting Israel and the world is concerning judgment. Israel and the world still believe that their judgment of Jesus Christ being worthy of execution was just and correct. Israel and the world believe 
that this is what Jesus deserved. And it's the Holy Spirit's task that they're to convict Israel and the world that their judgment was a warped and contorted view of justice. The Holy Spirit is working even now to show that the judgment that came to Jesus that night was really the judgment that God was now placing on Israel and the rest of the world. Israel is condemned with the condemnation that they pronounced on their Messiah. The world is condemned with the condemnation that they pronounced on their Savior. So, verse 11 says it this way, that judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Now, this verb, judged, is a perfect verb showing that the devil, Israel, and the entire world system has not only been declared guilty and convicted, but has also been completely defeated. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Let's go quickly to point number three today. The reason why we get to switch courtrooms. See, God's grace given through the Holy Spirit is that whenever a person repents, they switch tables from being prosecuted by Jesus Christ to now being defended by Jesus Christ. More than that, they switch courtrooms from the courtroom of the great white throne judgment to the courtroom of the Bema seat judgment of the Lamb. They switch courtrooms from being condemned for not believing in Christ to being saved because now they do believe in Jesus. By the time we get all the way down here to verse 12 of our text today, verse 12 is where he says, man, I wish I could just explain all of this to you. The Holy Spirit, his conviction turns into now because Jesus couldn't spell it out for them all this night. They weren't ready. So now what happens? The conviction of the Holy Spirit becomes the leading and the guiding of Christians into the truth that Jesus wants us to know and into glorifying Jesus through the way we now live our lives. Verse 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. Now, what he means is this. The destination will be, come into view for us. Now, you might have to take a step, and you only have light for that one step, but you keep walking in the truth. You keep walking in the way. You keep allowing the Holy Spirit to be your guide, and you are going to always know that the destination from which you are headed is right in view. It's right out there. Where we're headed, it's right out there. And we're all going to this marvelous place because the Holy Spirit came to guide us into the way. That's what Jesus said he was, the way. And the Holy Spirit reminds us us of his teaching. He empowers us to walk in his works. He glorifies Jesus Christ in and through us. 
He's not limited in how he does that. But this verse says that he's going to glorify Jesus through us by announcing to us everything Jesus has ever said and done. Now, the best way to have that expressed is through reading God's word. That's the best way to have that expressed to us. And the Lord said, greater works than these will we do. Because it's, it's kind of a, it's not a, a quality of work, it's a quantity of work. We, the body of Christ, we get to go out there and see miracles and see healings. We get to pray for people. We get to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. That's for all of us. So now it's like Jesus, he was the only one doing it back then. It's like all of us now get to do that. And so there's a greater quantity of the work of Jesus Christ taking place. So verse 14 says that the Holy Spirit is going to bring Jesus glory by telling us whatever it is that Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, needs us to know at any given moment. Now that's why when you're out witnessing or you're out sharing Jesus um, and you, you're afraid and you're not sure what you're going to say next, friends, Psalm 82, 10, that's all I can tell you. You know, take that verse and put it on a plaque and give it to your dentist. Because this verse says, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. Now here's five practical tasks of the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about this, but I want to remind you. The convicting of Israel and the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay, those are three tasks of the Holy Spirit. And the other two are working inside of us to guide us into all truth and then through our lives to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Now, most of us, I think, are of the persuasion that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin as, as Christians, now that we're Christians. And he's going to still, he's going to convict us when we sin. And he certainly does that. And he does that in a strong way. Gets stronger the further you walk with Jesus. It comes quicker. <laughs> because now it's, a, it's, it's becoming more refined in our lives. There's certain things that some people can get away with that those of us strong in the Lord can't. And don't want to. It can be painful when the convicting power of the Spirit comes to a, a strong believer. It's incontestable when he does. There's no doubt that he's convicting us of sin. But it's different than his convicting work in Israel and in the world. Because what he's doing for us is he's guiding us. He's bringing us back. He's that dog. Surely goodness and mercy, those two little dogs, goodness over here, mercy over here, and they're going to nip at your heels as a sheep, and they're going to keep you going in the direction that you're supposed to be going in. He loves us that much. So this morning, I want to just encourage you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, submit yourself to the Holy Spirit and obey 
what he brings your way. You'll know. Some of your friends, come on, let's go do this. Okay, okay. Oh, whoa, whoa. Hold on, hold on, guys. Hold on. I can't. Why not? I just can't. There he goes again. Listen into the Holy Spirit. Friends, every one of us one day is going to sit in a courtroom at a, at a table. You're either going to be prosecuted or you're going to be defended. Now, we're all guilty of sin, unrighteousness, and false judgments. Here's the question. Here's the question. As you sit at the, at the, at the defendant's table, is the Holy Spirit prosecuting you or is he convicting you uh, or is he defending you? Is he prosecuting you? I mean, is the Holy Spirit going to have to get up there and say, Lord, Father, as the books are open on this life, oh boy, oh, they did that? What? You did this? Seriously? Oh, what's wrong with you? And you have to answer for everything you've ever done if the Holy Spirit is your prosecutor. But if Jesus is your defense attorney, I'm telling you, the books are going to be open, all that ridiculous, nasty stuff is still in the book, but the Father can't see it. It's all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you get to stand there before God knowing that you're guilty, and God's going to say, innocent. He's innocent. She's innocent. Welcome home. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You get to live with me forever. You're free from all the charges. You experience freedom. Why? Because you chose the correct courtroom. You moved from the courtroom, and I'm telling you, every person ever on the planet who ever lived is going to have to give an account for their lives before the living God. And friends, if you end up at the great white throne judgment seat, you are being prosecuted. And you will have to answer for every sin you've committed. But if you ask Jesus to forgive you, man, you change courtrooms. You change lawyers. Well, same lawyer. But instead of prosecuting you, now he's going to defend you. Bow your heads right now. Close your eyes. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we come before you, Lord. Uh, just.